Hello, welcome to another episode of AUSU Open Mic. AUSU Open Mic is a podcast brought to you by the Athabasca University Students Union, which represents undergraduate Athabasca students from coast to coast to coast and all around the world. AUSU was lucky to have Dr. Fritz Pennecook, a professor of history here at Athabasca University, share some of the more radical and eccentric parts of Alberta's history. Here is his talk. Enjoy. Well, I'm going to talk about Alberta and perhaps not necessarily totally radical history. Well, when I first was appointed as a director of uh, historic sites for the province of Alberta many decades ago in 1979, there were roars of laughter from my friends in the National Park Service and in various other history with history groups, they said, Alberta doesn't have a history. You're into early retirement. What a joy that would be. Of course, being an Albertan and having been educated in Alberta, I thought this was rather annoying. Now, most of the people who believe that Alberta has no history actually were those people who weren't writing Alberta history. The the urban, what's called the professional immigrants of the 1950s and 60s who came after the big oil boom. There were earlier ones, but this is the group that thought we're coming to Alberta and we're coming to Alberta to make history. We're not going to be consumers of history. Well, these people, there was a certain mythology about Alberta. What does that include if you were to do a really traditional history? Well, it would include Indigenous people. And generally, to my great annoyance, Indigenous people are always the first because you deal with them first and you ignore. And that's not right. So we deal with Indigenous people, the fur trade, and everyone has a certain mythological perspective on the fur trade, the Métis people who actually in 1857, the Métis people ran Alberta, they dominated all spheres of life. Then we deal with the missionaries. And of course, everyone in Alberta knows the history of the South, the ranchers and the those involved uh, with cattle industry. And then we all have our stories of the railways, then farmers, agriculture, resource men, and then politicians. And Alberta continues to divide its history politically. That is, form the province, then you get the liberal government, then you get the UFA government, then you get you know, social credit, then you get the conservatives. And it, it, it's just uh, uh, an artificial way of dividing things. Well, what did this mythology, even this mythology created in by some early historians is patently wrong. First of all, most people like to think of, you know, the fur traders, involving voyagers, uh, trapping animals. Well, actually, the majority of people were involved in corporate activities to make sure that the revenues for the orphans and widows in London, because this was a, what's called an orphans and widows company, Hudson's Bay Company was so secure that uh, just keep that cash flowing. And in fact, there was a period in which the company was accused, accused of just sleeping by the frozen sea, making as little money as needed to keep itself and its board happy and afloat. So again, the mythology of the robust voyager is not always true. Same with when we go to Alberta's history in the early settlement period, is that you go to many, many historic sites and you see people crafting, uh, they're making things, they're 
tussling with the wilderness. Was it that kind of frontier or was it a shopping frontier? Now, I use that just tongue in cheek uh, because it always struck me when West Edmonton Mall hit the province. Is this an anomaly or is this part of our history? If you look at all of the early settlement areas in, let's say, East Central Alberta, virtually everyone was dependent on a store of one kind or another. You needed around $20,000 to start a homestead and it gained most everything was purchased, though there was some stuff that was made. Then there was, you know, as I mentioned, the struggle of the pioneer. You've got people battling the elements, whether it's bears or whether it's the Blackfoot or the Cree or the, you know, there's this great mythology that that's what happened when in fact, that is, as the more you investigated, more of a mythology. And then there's also the mythology of the Wild West Alberta. If you go to the book racks in the favorite tourism stores or gas stations in tourism areas, you will always find those little books that talk about Alberta as the Wild West, like the the, the last woman who was hung in Alberta, or the you know the shoot them out at a cafe or a train heist. I mean that's what they emphasize. The fact is that most people were busy working extraordinarily hard and didn't have time to be that wild. And I can talk about that more. And then we also in Alberta have the myth of the mounted police. And and there, there's always truth in some myths, but that everybody adored them. They're the ones that gave us a peaceful time. Well, there's truth in all of these myths, but are they what we should be looking at? What does not come to mind when you read the traditional histories is the fact that Alberta was very active in native politics from the very beginning. Which province, which indigenous people got the, the, the native people of Canada the vote? It was Albertans. And who who criticized the Chan Indian policies? It was Harold Cardinal, and he came up with the you know the the red policies. And you, I can go who which province gave the first uh, indigenous senator? So I can go through this over and over and over again. But what's really interesting is the nature of political activism amongst the indigenous people of Alberta. It was unique. It was uh, uh, rooted in the experience here. Second is, what doesn't come to mind because everyone will yawn, is, God, the history of education. Now, that's got to be boring. Well, it's not, actually. In Alberta, 1908, three years after becoming a province, we established a university. Then what did we do? We hired the best president in Canada, Henry Marshall Tory, who stayed for about 20 years. He established a university of national repute within about five years of coming. And it had incredible impact, not only in Alberta, in Canada. How many people knew that, for example, the discovery of insulin involved two early professors at the University of Alberta? Who knew that Alberta had the first research council in Canada? Most people don't know that. Which province created the National Research Council? Most people don't know that's Alberta. So there's something going on in Alberta that's unusual. 
that is predicated on knowledge, that's predicated on innovation. Again, as I mentioned in healthcare, yes, we, we were one of the early pioneers in heart studies and uh, diabetes and uh, stuff like that. And that continues till today for various reasons, which one should understand. What about child welfare? We were one of the first provinces to have a child welfare system. The advocate was from Ontario, Charlotte Witten, who was rather odd mayor of, uh, of Ottawa for a while. And how many people know that the Crow's Nest Pass, for example, was the most industrialized part of Canada for about a decade? Most people don't know that. Um, and Or the fact of the radio. The radio in the, it was introduced in Alberta in the 1920s and revolutionized politics and revolutionized religion. The other thing that we don't talk about is failure, because underneath all this innovation, there's also failures. And I was really interested for a while in failure in Alberta. What do people, we were known as the last frontier. Once you went to Alberta, that was the last of the free land in the North American continent of any value. So what happened when you failed? Well, where's the evidence of failure? Well, I looked and studied all the coroner's reports in Alberta. And they're there and they're in great detail. So if somebody who had a homestead committed suicide, the coroner went out and actually looked at their conditions, talked to the widow talk to the children there's literally hundreds and hundreds of these reports nobody's actually done a major study of these and they're they're fascinating and the reason i didn't continue is it's it's a real downer to go go into those uh the other thing is like where did albertans go when they failed because what's interesting is when you talk to pioneers or you do oral histories you're basically talking to the survivors that people who made it so what happens to all those people who left? Well, you go through all of the Alberta newspapers and find out because people recorded so-and-so's left, you know, they couldn't make it, they sold their home, whatever. It's all in the papers in one or two liners. Where did they go? California of all places. So the last Best West wasn't Alberta, it was California. Of course, as somebody pointed out last week, it's interesting because where did the Californians go when they failed? They went to Alberta. So there's a lot of movement back and forth between uh, the two. Well, what's really interesting is that the impact the radio had in Alberta, Eberhardt used the radio as a mechanism to mobilize. And he was one of the first in North America to do it. There were others, but he was one of the first particularly to use it for political purpose. And what's interesting is that on the radio, on the airwaves, he was teamed with Jack Benny. You, you, you listened to Aberhart and then you got Jack Benny. Uh, so, you know, it's good company. Anyway, I, fi I find the, the radio, particularly in Alberta, is so important because it was so early. Now, if we talk, what else does not come to mind when you're thinking of Alberta history? Well, government doesn't come to mind. Most people think government, what a yawn. You know, are you interested in the construction of bureaucracies? You'd probably glaze over and say, nope. 
But what's interesting about Alberta's government, if you probe more deeply, is that it has a very innovative financial structure for the management of debt. Now, this happened because of the 20s and 30s when the government was expanding and when there was depression. But we have a very, very interesting debt structure. And in this course I'm putting forward, I'm encouraging students to read that one article on how Alberta has managed uh, debt differently from other jurisdictions. Also, the arts are really different in Alberta. Alberta very early on uh, was dependent, some people thought, on Ontario or Great Britain for its artistic foundation. And to a degree, that's true. However, what happened in Alberta, because of the existence of the University of Alberta and its genius uh, president who had incredible connections everywhere, the Carnegie Foundation came up with a lot of money to do the normal things like established libraries, but they also uh, introduced theater to a lot of small communities. They introduced symphony to small lot of communities. Well, why did they give that money? They gave that money because they met several people from Alberta, including Henry Marshall Torrey and some of his successors, and said, this province has got incredible prov promise. And so we're putting money up. And so that money also created the Extension Department at U of A, helps establish the Banff School of Fine Arts, helped collect Alberta folklore. Most of you may have looked, read or be familiar with the Johnny Chinook legend, you know, where you're driving the sleigh and the Chinooks are so powerful that half the sleigh is in the snow and the other half is grinding on the gravel. Well, those collections of Chinook stories, they're, they're all... Um, funded by uh, the Carnegie Foundation. The other thing that most people don't think about is winter and wintering. Now, the culmination of the history of wintering in Alberta is an interesting one. It's actually the Winter Olympics in Calgary. You can see the tradition, if you know the people involved, that that had deep roots in our winterness. And that's worth exploring too. And the last thing that does not come to mind, but should come to mind to Alberta, is Alberta is more innovative than any other province in Canada. Why is that? Well, I'm still trying to figure that one out. But the innovation happens, for example, two years after we established a med school, you have research going on in diabetes and heart issues, which continues to today. You have, uh, for example, in IT, most people don't know, the JavaScript language came out of Alberta. Alberta is a leader in gaming, in agricultural innovation. It just, you know, the, the innovation goes on. And I'm trying to figure out, and I think there's some answers as to why this happens. Now, I got to go back to most people think, and this I put in because of today's politics. They're saying, well, Alberta is busy opposing uh, federal intervention. They're saying, yeah, and my view is Everett has been so. This is the cartoon that was in uh, the Calgary Eye Opener the day after, I believe, Alberta became a province. 
to me, this is huge because it continues for you know the next 40, 50, 60 years until today. You've got Laurier at the table say singing us uh you know eating a supper, and he you've got E A and you know Oliver, the uh a member of federal parliament from Edmonton who helped uh, the Alberta Act. And you see in the middle, it, you know, he says Albertans ever, ever shall be slaves. Well, you know, they, the rule Britannia says, you know, Britons never, never shall be slaves. Well, Alberta ever, ever will be slaves. You look at the bottom, what is it that they're not giving Alberta? Well, they're not giving them jurisdiction over schools at that time, not over land, not over minerals. So Alberta was created as a second tier or second rate province, as was uh, Saskatchewan. Now, understanding that Alberta only had about 100,000 people, you might figure out, okay, they got to be careful because they want to bump up the population to 2 million. So so that could be the downer, or it also is the beginning of how Alberta innovated its political systems to cope with uh, their status. Uh, in, in 1912, now this is uh, about three years after U of A was founded, about, well, you know, seven, eight years after, uh, seven years after Alberta was founded. And the population at that point was maybe 250,000, 300,000 people. I, I may be on the high side. In that year, you talk about dry land farming because Alberta was in Southern Alberta in particular was in a real throw of trying to cope with drought. And it was through innovation that they managed to cope with drought. So that gathering of 5,000 people was the largest gathering of its kind globally. And it happened in Alberta and the North of the province, which was more humid than the rest did extremely well in some of the competitions that were held there. But it's, it, it, it's, this has been forgotten by most people that Alberta really was the focal point of the world for a time in agriculture, just like today, it tends to be the focal point for oil. Well, when you listen to me go on about my enthusiasms for Alberta, then you start saying, okay, it's all very interesting, but can you pull the story together? Do you see patterns? That's what historians do. They're always looking for patterns of one kind or another. Well, I look at various books. I've read, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books on Alberta. The, probably the, the first book is one by John Blue, and it's your classic old Every pioneer who could afford to pay a subscription got his biography in there. So if you want to find out who's who in Alberta, go to John Blue. Now, the, the, the author who has probably done more to shape our current understanding of Alberta is Grant McEwen, the late Grant McEwen. Now, Grant focused on winners, people who struggled, pioneers, people who worked hard, he believed, and people who were frugal. He believed that those are the virtues, and every one of his books focuses on that. He was also uh, an agriculturalist, and he focused on innovation in agriculture. Now, if there's one book today, if you're looking today, there's a whole bunch of books, but 
The one that most people have read is Aretha Van Erich's uh, book uh, called Mavericks. And it was the foundation for a show at the Glenbow. Then you sort of ask yourself, okay, what's this all about? Well, if you read it carefully, Aretha couldn't come to any conclusions. So if everybody is an odd person, then everyone's a maverick. There's no cohesion to the province. We're all we're all off doing our own thing and we're all like the maverick, how doing whatever we do. And that one seems to appeal to people for various reasons because it, it, it pulls out the eccentrics uh, in the community. It goes for the unusual and she is an outstanding storyteller. So Mavericks is a outstanding set of stories, but is it history? Well, she will say, I'm not a historian, so it isn't. Well, I'd say, Aretha, come on. Of course you wrote a history. It was part of a history museum. Anyway, what, what does tie us together? Well, at the moment, there doesn't seem to be a lot in the historical literature. There are a lot of local histories in Alberta. has got hundreds and hundreds of local histories. They're basically all the same. It's the people who settled the area, what they did, and their descendants. And those are really useful. Then in Alberta, we have probably more what's called subject history, history of oil and gas, uh, history of certain kinds of implements, the history of child welfare, the history of insanity in central Alberta. We've got lots and lots of really interesting subject history. How did they come about? Well, they came about, uh, I'll have to admit, when I was director of historic sites, there was a dearth of information on anything. So we managed to secure funds to commission uh, oh, probably several dozen histories. So the history of Main Street, Alberta, the history of Northern Alberta, the history of various implement types, the impact of the car in Alberta, which is all very important. That all came out of those historic site developments. Well, what is also true about Alberta and why our history is somewhat deficient is we never had an archive until 1967. All we really consulted were the newspapers in the uh, legislative library, and then Glenbow started to collect early on. We have incredible collections in this province. We have an archives now. We also have records, and I'm just gonna mention some that are not widely consulted. We don't use the death records or uh, coroner's reports, and they're so rich in material. We also don't uh, use court records. The court records, you say, well, what can you get out of those? Well, uh, I had a student once who did nothing but uh, document all the crimes uh, that were committed in the province from 1905 or well, actually 1880 to, you know, 1935-40. And what you find out is that in the early years of the province, crimes were against persons. And then as people became wealthier, crimes were largely against property. And so you can see and using those records as to what the change was happening in in the province. We also have a very, very rich repository of newspapers that are being pulled together. Another record that I find absolutely fascinating are Alberta's census records. 
they were at one point municipal, so that if you were, let's say, in Wetasco in Alberta, the 1920s, I could go and find out whether you had a car, what the make of the car was, whether you had a bed in your house, how many beds you had, what kind of tables you had. It just went on and on and on. So th those early uh, census documents that were done at the municipal level for taxation, they are absolutely fascinating. And you can certainly determine a lot from that. This is probably around 19, maybe 12, 15, when our population was around, you know, off the top of my head, around 200,000. Imagine building a building of that scale and scope for a province that had 200,000 people. And then you look at, the, at the, the right of the picture, you see old Fort Edmonton, which is going to be demolished uh, very shortly. And the logs from that fort, just an aside, ended up in a barn in Ellerslie, Alberta. Whole pile were burned, but the other logs ended up in Ellerslie. And I managed to rescue all those logs. And uh, I asked anyone, what, do you, what would you do with these logs, as I call them, uh, the logs of the true fort? Well, I thought that maybe they could be used as a fundraiser and sell off splinters of the true fort to, to people. It didn't go anywhere. I think there's a few logs still uh, in the Provincial Museum. The logs are interesting because all of the uh, markings on the logs indicating the height of furs or what was being traded, they're still on those logs. They were used as, as documents. So when, when thinking about, okay, you're reading all this stuff on Alberta, what, what are the themes that could emerge? Well, uh, some people would like to argue that Alberta is in essence an Ontario province and it's underlain with American uh, cultures. The reason they would say that is because uh, there's some truth in that. In the first legislature in Alberta, virtually all of the members were Ontarians because the Americans couldn't vote and couldn't run because after all, this is part of the British Empire. Most of the people came from a single district in, uh, in Ontario. They all knew each other. So it was a bit of a uh, southern, south, southwestern Ontario cabal. And you can make a lot out of that if you want, uh, but it's there's not enough research to support that, I don't think, yet. Then there's Alberta, the last frontier. Well, that's what people believed for the longest time. This is sort of the Aretha thesis. We're a history of crazy people or eccentrics or, or odd people. And this is where, because it was the last frontier in the North America, well, I guess that's what you get when you're the last frontier. That is not very fulfilling and ignores a lot of the other themes that run through or uh, you know, you can just say we're we're wacky. I, I should have introduced this picture earlier, but I've got to introduce it. This is by uh, a very famous Alberta artist, Henry Glyde. It is a mural in the library, the undergraduate library at the University of Alberta. What this uh, does is convey very, very, very traditional history. And I would argue that's not the history we want. If you look, you see 
of the indigenous people at the bottom. And then you see the tier of the missionaries. Then you see some of the uh, the Métis traders. You see the police in one corner, and you see the uh, the uh, railway in the other corner, and you see the great corporate and missionary presence at the top. It was purposely constructed that way. So that's the history of the past, but it's not the history of the future. Well, where does the history of the future come from? At least this is my argument. Well, I looked at Alberta's museums and interpretation centers. I was fortunate to be involved in the building of about a dozen of them. We spent a lot of taxpayers' money, several hundred million putting these together. The reason we put them together is Peter Lougheed, then Premier, said, I'm sick and tired of people from Ontario saying we have no history, and his history goes way back in Alberta. He says, I don't want this province to be the last stop on the subway out of Toronto, where people just go back every weekend, back home, and ignore this province. There's a lot to do in this province. We've got to get people out of the cities. We've got to see make sure that they understand the dynamics. So what happened is, let's say the Reynolds Alberta Museum studied uh, their machinery they had in that collection. And they found out that there was incredible innovation in the way steam threshing was done in, in Alberta. Uh, they found that there was incredible innovation as well in breaking land because of the dry, uh, because of the fact we had very dry soils. Uh, and again, one I like is the innovation in in uh, in hay and haying. So th these became really important. Now I'll go back again to what is so important about Alberta, what ties it together. Go back to Henry Marshall Torrey. Henry Marshall Torrey is the guy in the center of the picture, the young guy with the mustache, hands in the pocket. He's the president of the university. University founded in 1908. This is the first, uh, one of the first civil engineering classes. So why is this so important? Well, the way land was organized in Alberta was highly innovative. For example, the way we uh, dealt with irrigation was unusual and we can track to some of the people in those civil engineering classes. So yeah, things were different here, but they were based on innovation and education. Now, one of the things that happens at universities during war, and this is a, I, I, I use this again, here's Henry Marshall Torrey, during the war, he immediately said, okay, everyone's off going off to war, I guess. What am I going to do? So he established the Khaki University overseas for Albertans. And again, a lot of these uh, students graduated. A lot of them came back. A lot of them were, again, innovators. Now, then I looked at industry as well in the province. Did innovation was it something that university grads did or desperate farmers who had to make crop off the land? Who were the innovators? Everyone was an innovator. At the Turner Valley gas plant, we managed to get a hold of all of the drawings that showed how it was to be built by the engineers. Then you get another set of drawings called the as-built drawings. And what we found out was that there was an incredible amount of innovation by the guys who worked on the plant. 
they're the ones that made all the changes that made that plant survive. So again, everyone is an innovator, but no one's done the research yet on that kind of innovation. Now, this is a, a great story. So the federal government, when they transferred their resources to Alberta in 1930-33, whenever it was, the one resource they didn't immediately transfer were the tar sands or the oil sands. They kept those for federal government jurisdiction, under jurisdiction. Why? Because they didn't believe Alberta could innovate enough to uh, extract the resource from those sands. Well, then what happened? Well, we have a professor from the University of Alberta who worked for the Alberta Research Council, Dr. Carl Clark. Dr. Clark went up north on a small plot and he actually developed the, uh, uh, the extraction methods for oil. The big plant that the federal government put in place to try to do the same thing I have to tell you, failed. Now, that, that that's a, a, an interesting story, and uh, there is more to it than that, but it's a, it's a good good one. So in the end, then, what do we what do we do? Uh, what is something that can tie all of Alberta together? I think it's it became a place for innovation because there were few constraints and also because of incredible leadership in innovation in the early years on the part of farmers, on the part of the universities, and the part of the people in the arts. We've got to, to, to look for what I call new leaders, and they're not in the political sphere, they're in the and uh, what I call the educational sphere. So what do we have in Alberta? Well, we had Henry Marshall Torrey. He established the National Research Council. He established the Alberta Research Council and the first of any provincial one. He got the, hired the people that started oil industry innovation. And we also have innovation in culture. For example, establishment of, of CKUA, the Banff School of Fine Arts. Distance learning, those are all innovations that come out of Alberta and the Alberta experience. One of the things I did was look carefully at where, what do Albertans value? And there's many, many different ways to look at that. You can look at members of the Alberta Order of Excellence, or you could look at members of the, uh, let's say, of the Order of, uh, of Canada. And you look at what is recognized. It's innovation in agriculture, in planting, in seed, in livestock. It just goes on and on and on. The other thing that I always mention, because I think it's one of the more interesting innovations, most people don't know, for example, in Alberta, the fitted bedsheet was an Edmonton invention. Well, why was the fitted bedsheet then sold so quickly in the States? Well, it's because the woman who invented the fitted bedsheet couldn't raise the capital to move it up. And that's always been Alberta's single biggest problem is getting capital to support its innovation. So what did she do? She sold her innovation to one of the big American bed uh, sheet companies for a reasonable amount of money. So, so 
it, there and there are more of those kind of, of of stories, but we don't try to search them out. We also have incredible innovation and not the kind that le le leads you to jail time, but innovation in politics, innovation in finance as well. Uh, so I think what I would like to do is tie Alberta's history together with the idea that we should focus on innovation. And that includes innovation in Indigenous affairs as well. I've done uh, one unit in the course talks about innovation in politics. The way the Blackfoot, for example, uh, or the Bloods uh, managed the community during some pretty desperate times is highly innovative and actually crossed into other areas of, uh, of governance in that community, in the communities down south. Anyway, it, it, we can go on and on. Now, what is going to be interesting about this course, I think, and you could all disagree with me, is that I'm going to try to be innovative in the assignments. So this course, which is a senior level course, undergraduate, what we're going to do is say, pretend you're a historian. Well, not you're taking the course, you are a historian. Uh, find a client who's interested in history. Could be a museum, could be child welfare organization, could be anything. Uh, find a client, find out what they want to know, educate them about what more they should know, then uh, write that, that, a history for that particular client. There's ample resources. So what you do by doing that, you're driving history in a direction that the public needs. Now, someone said, what happens if somebody wants me to write something I don't agree with? I'd say, well, you're a professional. You're supposed to then engage in the art of persuasion, of further investigation, and the use of evidence. So this course is going to have one major assignment, which is going to be, uh, and I'll help you, uh, find the client, uh, map out what the client needs, and at the end, I also want you to submit a dummy invoice. I mean, I'll see the invoice. I don't want to scare off people, but an invoice, like how much time did you spend? What did you think this was worth? Uh, so it's, it is the commodification of history to a degree, but it's also trying to bring history into everyday life. <laughs>